You may be seated. When Jesus' disciples asked them, asked him how to pray, one of the phrases in that teaching that always always rung out and stuck with me, in fact, I've included it in my regular prayer time every day, he said, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think it's important for us to know that temptation is something that we are led into. It's something that we are seduced into doing or lured into it, that we're drawn away by our own desires. As James says in James chapter 4, God tempts no one, but every person is tempted when he is drawn away, enticed, and baited by his own evil desires. Someone once referred to this as the bait trap of Satan. And a bait trap is a little, a very simple device. I used to do it all the time when I was a kid. I'd take a fruit box and I would put a stick over one end and tie a string to it and I'd throw breadcrumbs underneath the box. And when the birds would come and come and eat the bread, I would pull the stick and suddenly the bird was captured under the box. And then I had the dilemma, now that I've caught him, what do I do with him? I was afraid to touch them, and so usually I would flip the box and run away, and then they would take off. But it was the idea that I had captured them, and that's the idea of a bait trap. It's capturing something. And that's why we're told by the Apostle Paul that when someone becomes captive of the enemy, we should pray for them. We should pray that God would grant them repentance. And as we've talked about in the past, repentance is that change of mind that we see things in a completely different way. We understand things from God's perspective and not simply from our human horizontal perspective. We see the long-range implications, not the short-term gratifications. And as such, we begin to make wiser choices. We become people who are more prudent, more insightful, more discreet. We just began to realize that there are some things that if we give place to them can never turn out well. It can never lead to the good that we want to experience in our life. It will always lead us to something other than that, usually something pretty negative. And so he says we should pray that God would grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And it sounds crazy to us because most of us believe that we're pretty clear on what's true and false, and yet... We are so easily malleable and so easily deceived that in many ways we tend to believe what's true, that which is repeated the most frequently and the most often. It's the thing that the Nazis employed during and prior to World War II where they said, you tell a lie often enough and loud enough that people will eventually agree with it even though it makes no sense whatsoever. And all we have to do is look at the historical example of their behavior and realize they were very effective in convincing many people, not only within their own borders, but around the world, that if a person was born Jewish, they were less than human. Eventually, they became considered not really human at all, but simply vermin, like rats and mice and things of that nature that need to be eliminated. And so there were people who were normal in every way, who might dandle their children on their knee at evening as they listened to Schubert or Brahms or Wagner, and yet as they were listening to this highbrow music and being sophisticated, sipping their sherry, they would also spend the day murdering these people because they had been convinced that they weren't people at all. 
And we often puzzle with that. We say, how can something so atrocious take place? How, what was wrong with these people? And having spent a lot of time in Germany, I understand the German people are pretty normal. You know, they're not like Americans who are abnormal. They're pretty normal people, you know what I mean? They're, they're likable, they're enjoyable, and the fact that their favorite words, no. But the simple thing is that you can believe something to be true that's not true at all. And I think most of us are aware of that, but we just don't think we're subject to that problem. And yet, so often when God is dealing with some aspect of your life, that your relationship with him might be secure, but your fellowship with him sometimes can be interrupted. And the realization that something has come into my life and has interrupted fellowship, not relationship, but fellowship, is kind of a startling thing that's hard to admit because many times we find that we have given place to silly and petty and foolish things. Hatred, envy, jealousy, pride, lust, you, 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 the whole list is there within scriptures, but we all are familiar enough with it because we've seen it in somebody else. But we're pretty sure that we don't have a problem with that. Well, my point is that the knowledge of the truth is revelatory, and truth is often painful. Because oftentimes it discloses things about me and yourself that you don't want to really look at. That we're all sinners and that we all fall short of the glory of God. And if we're not for his grace, we wouldn't know anything about the glory of God. So he says we should pray that they would have a change of mind, that they would come to a knowledge of what was really true, and that so they will come to their senses. In other words, they'll behave in a sensible way, not just impulsively or reactively or even selfishly, but they'll come to their senses. They'll realize this makes no sense whatsoever. That's, in fact, where we get the whole concept of nonsense. My pastor used to have a little clever saying he used when he talked about reading the Bible. He says, if the Bible makes plain sense, don't seek any other sense because you'll probably end up with nonsense. And I found that to be true because basically it's only as they come to repentance, they come to the knowledge of the truth, you come to your senses like the prodigal son who says as he's standing knee deep in, in pig poo, eating horn husks, and he says, it says in the text that he came to his senses, and he said, even the servants in my father's house are, have better conditions than I have. I'm going to tell him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and he stepped out of the poo, and he started walking back to his father. The wonderful thing about that story is, as the father is looking for him, waiting for him to come to that moment, he suddenly sees him coming on the horizon and he rises up and he runs to his son. Let me tell you something about Middle Eastern men. They don't run. <laughs> Servants run, but in this moment, here's a father in love for his son. He pulled up his robes and he began to run like a child and threw his arms around his son and embraced him and welcomed him home. That's what happens when somebody escapes the trap that the devil has their life in. Unfortunately, there are so many kinds of temptations, as we see in our looking at the seven churches of Revelation. We, we talked about the church in Ephesus. It was the subtlest things. They had become proud in the legacy of their history. They had a litany of great leaders that rivaled, was rivaled by none. 
And it led them into kind of a self-sufficiency, a kind of a sense of superiority. And as a consequence, we're told that their love began to go cold. There was a, basically a callousness towards other people. They had lost one of the most important dynamics of spirituality, and that is compassion. Compassion is the ability to identify with what someone else is doing, that you feel their loss. And one of the things I have found in life is the more pain you feel in life, the more you develop a sense of compassion. If you don't develop compassion, you just develop a mean-spirited personality. You become hateful. But when you can look at what somebody else is going through because you went through something similar, you begin to have that key ingredient that we see in Christ who looked on the multitudes that were coming to him with all of their issues, their diseases, their, and their afflictions, but also their own personality defects, all of their hang-ups and their problems and their disappointments and their anger and resentment and betrayals and the unfairness of life. That's what it really comes down to. They came to the realization of the unfairness of life, and as they're coming to Jesus, he said Jesus looked at him, and his heart went out in compassion towards them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. What is a sheep without a shepherd? Well, there's not many shepherds here, I believe. But I can tell you one thing they are. Another term for them is lamb chops. <laughs> they don't survive. They get ravaged by the elements or ravaged by wild beasts. They're defenseless. And Jesus looked at people in their humanity and said, I see people who are just virtually defenseless against the things that are coming at them in life. And he had compassion on them. Compassion is something that you can't walk away from. Compassion is something that demands that you become involved, that you have to help out, that you have to kind of fix things in a way. Compassion is one of the things that, like last week, motivated so many of you to serve in the Calvary Camp, Camp Calvary. I mean, it was amazing. I saw the fatigue on your faces. <laughs> That many young children with, you know, sugar overdoses can drain the energy out of anybody very quickly. I got exhausted just coming and watching. <laughs> but they had lost that compassion. They were like the Pharisees. They became experts in washing the outside of the cup while neglecting the filth that was on the inside. They were moral, but they weren't spiritual. It was just simply legalism. And then there was a church of Smyrna that we looked at. Their, their temptation, understandably, given their circumstance, was basically fear. The fear that kind of takes over and blinds us to any kind of clarity. Their temptation, understandably, was a normal reaction. I mean, being crushed by persecution. And unfortunately... When we give in to that kind of fear, our first response is flight. We want to run away from the moment. And then if we can't run away, we try to figure out, is the way I can get out of it? And one of those is compromise. Instead of standing our ground and saying, here I stand, I can do nothing else, like Martin Luther did when he stood before hundreds of men who wanted to tear him apart limb by limb, and he was enjoined to refute and to deny the faith that he had accepted and the truths that he had subscribed to. He simply said, here I stand, I can do none else. And Jesus said to them as he was talking to the 
the people in Samaria, he says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. As I began focusing on that statement last week, I I, I began to reincorporate that into my wife and I's daily prayer time because one of the things we started asking God is help us to be faithful to the end. It's not good enough to be faithful up to this moment, but Lord, when those moments become very pressing, very difficult, when the cost begins to go up, when the support systems are no longer there, help me to be faithful. Help me to hold my ground. As Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6 about fighting spiritual warfare, he says, stand therefore, and having done everything you can to stand, therefore stand. So I think the word stand is key in that whole passage. The idea that you hold the ground that God has given you. Because sometimes just holding the ground is key to the victory. Satan wants us to desert certain grounds. He wants us to avoid those bad situations. And yet so often I think the Christians, we think when things become difficult, what we should do is withdraw from the culture, withdraw from the places where we're engaged because people aren't nice and they may be even nasty and they may say things about us or be against us. And yet most of the time, unless you have this clear word from God, you should just stay where you're at and hold your ground to be that witness. Which brings us to the church of Pergamum. What was their big temptation? Well, interestingly, their temptation was the culture itself. What is a culture? Culture is, I I, I got this definition from from our vice president the other day. What is culture? (laughs) Unfortunately, she didn't know this, so hers didn't make as much sense as this will, I hope. But it's a collective value system that uniquely defines a group of people. In other words, the culture of any community is what do we value? What is really important to us? As a Christian, if I value love for God and I value love for my neighbor, if I value the word of God, if I value community as Christians, as I value sharing my faith, these things become defining characteristics of a community and it can be a defining characteristic of a church because if a church for you is merely a place where you're gonna discover your seven best friends, That creates a very different culture because what becomes important in that moment is maintaining the relationships, not the pursuit of righteousness. If my purpose of being in a community is because we have this cause that we're fighting to overcome this thing and that thing, if that becomes the defining purpose, then what you'll be known for is what you're against, not what you're for. But if you're defined by Christ then everything that Christ stands for and everything that Christ values and everything he hates and everything he loves become those things that are part of your value system and define who you are. But here is the difficulty. No matter what culture you're in, it's a counterculture to Christ. You see, every group has their own cultural characteristics and the things that kind of set them apart. I've had Europeans say, we can tell when Americans come into the airports as we watch them getting off the plane. They stand out. I, I, think, I think to myself, my, I see people from different cultures, and oftentimes, if I'm familiar, I can recognize who they are. Even when I was in, in York, London one time, and I was talking with a group of British guys there, and, and I was explaining to them that we're people who are separated by a common language. 
I said, you know, when we left here 250 years ago, uh, the English language was a perfectly good language, and I come back now, and you guys have made a mess of it. <laughs> and they looked at me for a moment and then goes, wait a minute, it's the other way around. <laughs> I said, no, I don't think so, I'm right. But... Um, but that difference, if you want to fit in with the culture, you either are going to have to conform to what it is, you have to embrace what's there, or else you have to somehow convince everybody else to change. Now, for Christians, we call that evangelism. That we are calling people out of one culture and inviting them to become a part of a new culture. And we can't lose sight of that. That Christianity is the most counterculture movement that the world has ever known. Come out from among them, the prophet said, and don't touch the unclean thing. And suddenly you find you're in a culture where the things that you like the most, now God says that's an unclean thing. And if I want to fit into that culture, I will continue in the unclean thing. But if I want to fit into the kingdom of God, then I have to come out from that and say, I'm not going to touch that anymore. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. There was a quote in Guitar Magazine many, many years ago, back when I read Guitar Magazine and actually knew how to play a guitar. But they had this thing that stuck with me for years. It says, we all say we know the kind of music we like, but the truth is we just like the music we know. I thought how that was transformational for me because I remember when I first started hearing country western music, I thought, my goodness gracious, what's wrong with those people? And now it's one of my favorite playlists. I was afraid to admit that. <laughs> but I love country music songs. I love their titles, their words, their lyrics. They're, they're great titles of songs like, Honey, I, I miss you, but my aim's getting better. <laughs> my sweetheart left me and took my dog and my pickup, and I sure do miss them. You know, these kind of things are, you know, these are, these are things that are legend. They, they hold on to you. But seriously, the most challenging thing is when the change that God is calling for is so diametrical that it is actually the cultural difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You see, although there are multiple cultures in the world, for the most part, they get their air supply, as Paul noted in Ephesians 6, from the powers of this dark world and from spiritual forces of evil. In fact, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, it says in Luke 4 that the devil said to him, he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and all of their splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. I mean, think about that for a moment, that statement. <clears throat> I own all the kingdoms of the world, and I give it to those whom I want to give it. It strikes me when I was reading Daniel and he talks about how that Michael the archangel is contending with the, the powers of darkness. And he said, it took me a while to get here because I had to confront the king of Persia or the prince of Persia and then I had to confront the prince of Greece. 
And what he's talking about is spiritual powers and entities that are demonic assignments where they actually control the geopolitical dynamics of these great empires. And it's interesting because as the Solomon said in Proverbs, that righteousness exalts a people, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so as you follow the trajectory of nations, you see them having sort of a a moral certitude. There's a very clear delineation of what's right and wrong, and they reach a level of, of wealth and power and prosperity, and then they begin to go into the age of indulgence. They begin to give themselves permission to do things that God says thou shalt not, and they begin to decline and destroy themselves. And the whole point is is that Satan seduces people historically. He seduces whole cultures and nationalities to embrace lifestyles that are self-destructive. Because God says, don't be overmuch wicked lest you perish before your time. So when we look at the destruction of the earth under Noah's flood, when we look at at the Sodom and Gomorrah, when we look at the destruction of the Canaanites, and we sit there and say, what was it that they did that brought such hardship, and the answer was they embraced wickedness. They didn't just do it occasionally, they embraced it as a cultural distinctive. That all not only unlimited, no boundaries in terms of sexual morality, but they even to the point where they would kill the weakest and most intimate amongst them. Historically, most people, beginning with Adam and Eve, in fact, have taken Satan up on this offer. Which is why, regardless of the culture we're talking about, Christianity always begins as a counter-cultural movement. And as such, it becomes a threat to what is the status quo. Or as Jesus put it, he said, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and Only a few find it. Well, you know the other half of the passage. Wide is the the pathway that leads to destruction. It's few who choose to go down that narrower path. And that's why I've often been told that as a Christian that I am so narrow-minded. And I say that's because I know where I'm going. I don't need to try many paths to the same summit. They do not lead to the same summit. What makes it even harder is that being countercultural is counterintuitive. Estella Morabito, who is a former CIA intelligence officer, analyst, and, and uh, she basically, her whole career was studying how despotic regimes convince people to do destru- destructive things. She wrote a book called The Weaponization of Loneliness. Subtitled, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. She explains, says, it doesn't matter what your politics are. People want friends. People want family. They want strong relationships. Nobody wants to be lonely. And that's why what I call the weaponization of loneliness is so effective. It doesn't even matter how fringy the idea is. Say, hmm, LGBTQ. 
If you keep injecting into the public discourse over and over and over again, say like TV, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or something like that, you create this cascade of public opinion. People will go along with it primarily for reputation reasons. In other words, they want to be liked, and so they will conform to what's popular, or at least what's popular based upon what they hear the most. It's not, by the way, you know, in not inconsequential the fact that certain things are being silenced or canceled or, you know, shadow banned or all these kind of things that increasingly we're coming out finding that our government has been doing uh, to extreme measures. But the, the point is that we only want one message going out so that we can unify people around one message and we do that by silencing any other commentary. So that's not by mistake. It's not an oversight. It's not a problem of just getting the facts wrong. It's trying to redefine reality. But she goes on to say that people will go along with it primarily for reputational reasons. It all depends on who speaks and who remains silent. People aren't terrorized as easily if they have a strong bonds of relationships. That's why the private sphere, which he's referring to as the family, the schools, the churches, even the marketplace, is such a target, no pun intended, such a target of tyrants and authoritarians, authoritarians because that's where the power lies. That's where the power lies. What those in power do to maintain the status quo is either reject or appropriate everything that contradicts or, and, and, make the, and, and appropriate it unto themselves to make it their own. I, I think about when I was in high school, my mom got me a, I was in boarding school, so I would go to town to buy my own clothes, and, and uh, there was a store there that I frequented, a very Tony men's shop. It was called The Gay Blade. They changed their name. But here was a word that was perfectly normal word, word to be gay, and it was appropriated by some of the most unhappy people I've ever met as a way of denying the reality of their choice and their lifestyle. Or there was um, say for example, the rainbow. Who created the rainbow? You know, it's been talking about cultural appropriation. And yet as a church, how, if I were to, you know, put a big rainbow over our church, the whole message would be different than we would hope. It's a message of promised redemption, and yet it's been turned into a message of sexual immorality and exploitation. Or how about something very simple? like the idea of pride. We just endured an entire month of Pride Month. Pride, which is considered to be the first original sin and to be a character flaw and weakness, is suddenly held up as being the highest moral virtue you can ever rise to, to be proud of your new assumed identity or gender. When in reality, the Bible says that pride is this thing that condemns people, 
You see, what Satan did was he tried to change his gender. He wanted to go from being an angel to actually being God. Now, just as unsuccessful as he was, so are people today who want to change their gender. They will not succeed because it goes against the very laws of God who wrote them. (laughs) The creator who created everything made us that way. It's either male or female. But yet, I was having this conversation with a young man last week, and it was really striking to me because as we were talking, he says, well, I, I used to not believe in the transgender thing, but now I believe in it. And I said, why? He says, well, because they're doing all these scientific things where they're changing people's gender, and they're doing this, and they're doing that. And I said, excuse me, that's a lie. That's not truth. Who told you that? Well, I heard it someplace. I said, you know, it really comes down to simple science. You're either XX or you're XY. Those things can't change. That's fixed. So when you look at something like somebody saying, I'm going to change my gender, where does that come from? And I'm going to be proud of this new gender? It comes from Satan who said, I am no longer going to be just an angel. I am going to become God. I will, I will, I will, I will, claiming the power to do things that he does not have the power to do and could not do and could not succeed. And we sometimes say, how could Satan be so smart and yet so stupid? And I say to you, look around the world today and ask yourself, how can people who have such vast education and background and know better in life say some of the most ridiculous, unfounded things we can possibly imagine And yet, as Voltaire warned, he said, if we can get them to believe absurdities, we can convince them to do atrocities. You see, the Romans, when they conquered the Greeks, appropriated their culture and their religion. Suddenly, Zeus became Jupiter. Basically the same pantheon of gods. They just gave them all new names. And it's interesting because (laughs) the more confusing the conversation gets, the quieter people grow. Because soon after that, we find that Jupiter also now became Caesar himself. And a refusal to worship Caesar as a god was a de facto rejection of Jupiter, who in turn became a rejection of religion. And so Christians were actually called atheists because they believed that there was only one God. They were considered to be atheists. Now, it's a strange way of applying the word to us because we understand that term to mean that they don't believe in any God, but even the ancients were smart enough to realize that everybody believes in some God, and many times it's just themselves. But essentially what happened is the Greco-Roman culture that they now represented instantly made Christians an enemy and a threat. Martin Luther King, in his book, Strength of Love, noted that this is how kind of segregation worked in the United States in the first half of our century. He said that bigots found a way to rationalize racism through twisting the Bible. You don't, it's hard to find one now, but there was actually an edition of the King James Bible called the Dakes Study Bible, and it promoted racial segregation, saying in it commentary notes that the mark of Cain was to have black skin. And there were whole movements 
throughout the country that subscribe to these commentaries. But I love what the way that Martin Luther King defined it. He said, what it became was a civil Christianity. We might say it was a way of civilizing or bringing, see the idea of civilizing something is to bring it into alignment with the dominant culture. So if somebody is civilized, they've learned how to play within the rules. That's why marriage is so important because something I discovered years ago was marriage is the only way that men get civilized. You know, when you're a single guy, you're living in your apartment, you know, every once in a while my mom would show up and the place would be miraculously cleaned. But other than that, it was not a place habitable to most human beings. You see, parents, we're to civilize our kids to teach them to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and thank you, and may I please, and wash your hands once in a while. And so, essentially, we find that, he says, what we do is we take things that are not very biblical, not very godly, and we just civilize them. We tame the language, if you will. They find a way to make it polite to be a bigot to make accommodation and adjustments and adoptions without regards to how unbiblical it is because the Bible is no longer the measuring rod. And what happens to Christianity in cultures like that is that they no longer are countercultural. They become fully enculturated. They no longer have any kind of radical element to them. They're tame, they're safe, they're predictable, they're controllable. Basically, it knows its place. It conforms to the norm. It's normal, which means it's no longer disruptive. This is what happened in Pergamum. The church started out well, but it stopped calling out the culture. It stopped pointing to the cultural sins, and he began baptizing them. When he says to him, you have people who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who enticed Israel to sin by eating food and sacrificed idols and by committing sexual immorality, and likewise you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's interesting, he says they hold to these things. The word krateo in the Greek literally means they hold on it with a powerful clinging grasp. It's not just something they're thinking about or flirting about or are unclear about. They have committed themselves to this doctrinal view that is diametrical to scripture and they're not gonna allow themselves to be dissuaded. Now we might wonder why would they pick those particular perspectives? What were the teachings of Balaam and the, the doctrines of, of the Nicolaitans? Well, if you know your Bible, you know that Balaam was a, a nefarious creature who used his God-given talents for illicit purposes and personal gain. That's not something that's relatively new or unheard of even today. But what he did is he counseled Israel's enemies to avoid trying to combat them frontally and instead, to slip in the back, Jack, you don't need to be coy, Roy. There's 50 ways to lose your liver. What he did is he took Moabite and Medanite temple prostitutes, and he sent them right into the Israeli camps to seduce the men, 
to invite them not only into forbidden sexual encounters, but also the pagan rituals that were all part of this. And this is one of the things that we disconnect with, that we find over and over again, even into modern times, that these paganistic rites always involve sexual immorality. And they promote sensual promiscuity as a pathway to freedom. Jude referred to it, quote, he said, perverting the grace of our God into a license for immorality. It's interesting. When I hear people from pulpits saying things like, well, you can't condemn two people who love each other. And I would say, yes, you can. (laughs) They are already condemned by their choices. As one commentator put it, he said, it is the view that Christians can or even should compromise their convictions for the sake of popularity, money, sexual gratification, or personal gain. It's the attitude that treats sin as no big deal. It appears the Nicolaitans taught essentially the same thing. We talked more in depth about them. But according to Clement of Alexandria, who was a second century theologian, he said, they abandoned themselves to pleasure, leading to a life of self-indulgence. See, unlike the Ephesians, who, despite all their other problems, hated this false doctrine, many in Pergamum embraced it, and they did so for a good reason. They did it to avoid conflict by conforming to the culture. You see, these things of eating forbidden foods and participating in sexual immorality were all part of the worship practice. And so basically they said, why don't we just go along with it and enjoy it? It's fun anyway, so that we won't be persecuted. There's a story of a young man who's talking to his rabbi when he's been ordered to offer a sacrifice to the emperor. And it was a very simple thing. Take a handful of grain, bow down before his altar and pour the grain on the altar and then get up and walk away. You'd be given a slip of paper that gave you permission to buy and sell and participate in the economy. And so he goes to his rabbi, he says, I know I'm not supposed to bow down and worship the emperor, so I don't want to do that, but what if I just simply take a handful of grain and I come up to the altar and I bend over to tie my sandal. And while I'm tying my sandal, I just accidentally drop the grain on the altar and then get up and walk away. Nobody will know the difference. And his rabbi's answer was, God would. But I find that 90% of people will choose relationships over righteousness. One of the things that Jesus said that's so troubling to most of us is he said, you know, Those who follow me will find that husbands will turn against wives, parents against their children, their children against their parents. And 90% of us, I believe, would choose those relationships over doing what's right. You see, Pergamum didn't have the wealth of Ephesus or the industry of Smyrna, but they had one thing that the others didn't have, and that was status. For 400 years, Pergamum had been the administrative capital of Asia and continued to be so even under the Romans so that Pergamum dominated governmentally, politically. They were really the the Greek version of Washington, D.C. 
But even more importantly, they saw themselves as the custodians of the culture, the guardians of the Greek way of life. The city was marvelous. It was majestically situated atop a, a conical mountain. And architectural wonder was some of the most exalted and ornate temples in all of the Greek isles. Part of the evidence of that is the, the temple of Jupiter or the altar, which basically you can see in the next slide, as it magically appears. Uh, obviously, it's not on the side of the hill anymore, but this altar to Jupiter uh, to to, uh, and to Caesar, essentially, uh, is now in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. The, uh, the Germans abducted it in 1886 uh, and uh, moved it in total, the whole altar. It's, it's an unbelievably majestic altar. I mean, it's just stunning to look at it. And they moved it to Berlin, where it still remains today. But you see, Pergamon also had the second largest library in the ancient world, which may not seem much to us, but 200,000 parchment scrolls. In fact, the word parchment, which refers to leather that's been tanned, we call it vellum, leather that's been tanned and smoothed and made flexible so that they would use it as a writing material. When they got in a conflict with the Egyptians, the Egyptians wouldn't give them papyrus or paper to write on, and so they developed vellum, which became a much more durable and long-lasting material. Many of our biblical scrolls are, that we have coming from the early centuries of the church were written on parchment. The word parchment comes from the name Pergamum. They created this and they had this, the second largest library with over 200,000 scrolls on it, which was massive. So as the custodians of the Greek way of life, they would cruelly and they would radically eradicate anything or anyone that they perceived to be a threat to that way of life. And it's really interesting because under the Romans, this included anybody who would not bend the knee to the imperial cult that basically said the emperor is a living God. He's a deity. He's God incarnate they referred to him as the son of God. So you can see the conflict. Christians saying, I've received Christ. He's the son of the living God. And they say, there is no other son of God than Caesar. And suddenly you're at odds with your culture, your family, your friends, your neighbors. All citizens were required to attend annual festivals in, emperor, in honor of the emperor. They had to bow down to him. They had to worship him. They had to make token sacrifices to him. And to refuse to do so would often lead to ostracism and exile. Even in some cases, it led to execution. This was no small matter. And this immediately explains why Jesus' reference to Pergamum when he says, I know where Satan's seat is, where his throne is, where Satan lives. That oftentimes people say, well, it had to do with that altar to Zeus, which looked like a throne when it was built on the side of that conical mountain. But what Jesus was really saying is the whole political, religious structure of the Greek and the Roman world has its power and authority. Satan reigns and rules from there through those he has put into positions of power and authority. And I think that it would be a mistake for us in the time in which we're living not to recognize that when we see a whole regime and, and governmental system that is being 
bent towards such iniquity and obvious evil that it's just simply bad people making bad decisions. But to understand that there is a real force, there's a real power, and that power is coming directly from the pits of hell, that the portals of hell become open wider and wider, allowing more diabolical influences into our culture to continue to twist and pervert and corrupt and ultimately to destroy it because people are turning away from the truth. And they win that battle by our silence. You see, in the early days of the Pergamum church, there was a commitment to reject emperor worship on the part of the church. They were only going to worship Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the true Son of God. And that's what he says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith for me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. You see, again, this invited persecution. And so you have this man, Antipas, who the tradition tells us was a physician who was well thought of and highly respected within the city, became an early convert to Christianity. But soon he became accused to the authorities by his fellow physicians, some because of jealousy, others because of their own commitment to the religious order and culture. They accused him of being disloyal to Caesar because he was no longer going to the imperial festivals or offering sacrifice to Caesar. And so the authorities condemned him to death. And the manner of his death is, is really quite horrible. There was a man by the name of Paraleos, originally from Athens, who became the king of a small kingdom. And he was a sadistic person who enjoyed torturing people. He maintained power by torturing. And he basically created a thing called the brazen bull. And the brazen bull was basically a, a brass or bronze uh, structure, statue, that was hollow on the inside. And you would take the victim and you'd bind him and then they'd force him into, by a, by a door on the side, into the inner cavity of this statue. And then they would put a fire underneath it. And they would begin heating the brass until the person would simply, slowly, painfully roast to death. They even inserted tubes through the nostrils of the statue so as the person was screaming in torment, it would magnify the sound so it could be heard clearly by those who were outside. In fact, Paraleos left us his own description of how this worked. He says, when you are minded to punish anyone, shut him up in this receptacle, apply these pipes to the nostrils of the bull, and order fire to be kindled beneath. The occupant will shriek and roar in unremitting agony. His cries will come to you through the pipes as the tenderest, most pathetic, most melodious of bellowings. Your victim will be punished and you will enjoy the music. As I read that, I thought to myself, I wonder how he's enjoying the fires of hell. That as he shrieks in torment, there is no one to listen. See, without question, this is probably the most terrifying and chilling of tortures that ever has been created. And you can imagine the effect it had to the believers in Pergamum who would have been forced to witness this ordeal. 
it kind of explains their willingness to find a theological way to get around the particularities of Christianity. That they would feel like they needed permission to go ahead and do honor to the emperor and in, in effect to honor Satan so that they could avoid having the same fate put upon them. And I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus was in no way insensitive to their plight or how difficult their situation was because he begins by saying, I know where you live. I know the circumstance you're dealing with, which is one of those important things I think for us always to keep in mind when we're going through a particularly hard time in our life and we wonder, God, how are you letting this happen? And God's response is, I know where you live. I know what you're dealing with. I know why you're facing the situation. I know what's happening. But you're not going through it alone. Jesus calls out to them not to compromise, but in spite of the terror of the moment, to courageously confront the culture without having any undue regard for the consequences. Because as Paul said to Timothy as he was awaiting his own execution in 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, do not be ashamed to testify. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The word ashamed that Paul uses here twice in a row means fear which prevents a person from doing the right thing. The fear that comes that I know I should say something, I know I should do something, I know I should take a stand, I know I should be consistent, I know I should suffer loss if that's a consequence of doing what's right. I know that, but I'm so afraid that I'm going to go against my own conscience. But as Paul said to him in a verse earlier, he said, for God did not give us the spirit of timidity. <laughs> Dilea, it's an interesting word. It means to be timid. It means to be fearful. But it also means cowardice. A cowardice that's caused by the intimidation of an adversary. But instead, Paul said, he hasn't given us that fearful spirit. He's given us a spirit of power. He's given us a spirit of love, and he's given us a spirit of self-control or self-discipline, a, basically a calm, well-balanced mind that doesn't lose its senses when it finds itself in an insensible situation. But Jesus left them with an important promise that we would be well to focus on, a promise that won't mean much to you if you know, you're always measuring your life by the bookends of birth and death. I find most people may measure their life by the bookend of birth, but they don't like to think about the other bookend, which is death. Even though we know that it's more certain that you will die one day than it was ever certain that you were going to be born. You were born because, you know, some lucky sperm, you know, beat, won the race. You might literally say you were one in a million, but here you are, this mystery, this majesty of birth. You were born, and that wondrous thing, which was, maybe you could say it was just the lottery of life, but I would like to believe it's the plan of God. That's what he says. And that, that was uncertain, but death is absolutely certain. Despite Elon Musk's best efforts to create trans human beings that can live forever and ever, 
I think it's important for us to realize that that's just another fantasy as well. But you see, the problem is if we only even measure it by birth and death, old men like me start talking about our legacy. What is my legacy? And it's like, do you really think anybody's going to remember anyway? I mean, I, I drive by the statue of Abraham Lincoln downtown every once in a while, and I think, wow, that's magnificent. And then I think to myself, I wonder how Abe's enjoying that. You see, it's, when you leave this earth, the things of earth become strangely dim. They become evaporated, essentially, because you're entering into an overwhelmingly new, wondrous reality that can't even be described by human vocabulary. And God says, that's where really you and I need to be thinking more and more about the fact, not that we will live our best life now, but rather that our best life is after this life. I think John MacArthur was right when he said, if this is your best life now, you're going to hell. No, the best life for me comes after this life. That's why this life has problems and is unfair and is hurtful and disappointing. And regardless of how well you manage it, you'll just find that aging will lead to your own disappointment. And the simple reality is you were not created for time, you were created for eternity. And the more we grasp that truth, the more the promises of God begin to make a difference in how we decide about things. Because Jesus said, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. What was the hidden manna? Remember when they had manna was given to him in the wilderness in place of food? They ate manna for 40 years. And the day they entered the land of Canaan, the manna stopped falling. But what God told Moses, he says, I want you to gather a pot of that manna and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant as an everlasting testimony of how I have provided for you. It was the hidden manna. What it implies is I will allow you to go into a secret place of God where you will begin to eat and feast on things that are beyond your imagination. I'm giving you primary access. When he says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. If you were a citizen of a Greek city that had, had a voting rights for citizens, you would be given a white stone and you would write your name on it and then you would vote by dropping your stone in. If you didn't like somebody, you'd put a black stone in. But the whole point was you have the rights of citizenship in the heavenly realm of God. Because God will not only write your name on it, it's be a name that's not known, not, in the way we should probably translate it, which is not comprehensible to the human mind. That God's gonna give me a name that if he were to tell me right now, I wouldn't be able to comprehend it because it's so far above and beyond anything, any honor, any legacy, any attributions or approbations that we could possibly get in this world. He says, I want you to believe that. That enduring hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ is not just about proving what a good soldier you are. It's about putting yourself in a place where one day you will inherit things that are beyond even the explanation by human words or vocabulary. Paul called it simply the hope of our calling. And so it wasn't like Paul was running to be executed saying, I can hardly wait to feel the cold, hard steel of the ax upon my spiny neck. 
But he said, when that comes, I will know it's according to the plan and the purpose of God, and I will embrace it. And I will leave this world with, with joy and celebration. Something my pastor said one time that really struck with me, he said after a funeral that he had done, and he had done many, many, many funerals, and sat by many people who were leaving this world. He said, you know, when you come to the end of this earthly life, it said that veil that separates heaven and earth begins to get really thin and you can begin to see what awaits you on the other side. And he said, the fear of death disappears. For a man or a woman who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they've never had that divine revel relationship established. All they see is a dark, thick curtain that stands between them. And if they see anything on the other side, it is the demons of hell waiting to get their hooks into them. The same Voltaire who spent his whole life decrying Christianity, hated religion, he was really created the whole concept that Lenin built on saying it's the opiate of the masses. The church uses it to enslave people and so forth and so on. Yet as he's lying on his deathbed, he's crying out that he can see the demons of hell. He can feel the flames of hell licking at his feet, licking at his arms. And in stark terror, he's crying out. And his mistress looked at the doctors and said, see, he's lost his mind and had no compassion or understanding. But I would say he was probably more sensible in that moment than he had ever been. Too often in the church today, we have become so in love with the, the culture and the lifestyle that has provided us that we, we hate to see it ever disappear. And I'm not saying I embrace the collapse of our culture. It, it's painful to watch it happening all around us. Because when it falls, all the good things that came with it will go with it as well. But the whole point is that do we love that more than we love the eternity that God has promised to us on the other side? Have we still clung to that calling that we have been called to? That I wasn't called just to become a Christian. I wasn't called just to become a pastor. I was called to heaven. That becomes the trajectory. That becomes the path, the narrow way. And I would just say to you, are you on that narrow path? Or is the culture drawing you away? Even if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can do things that separate and create a break in fellowship. And maybe his divine silence doesn't bother you, but someday it will. Someday you'll wake up and say, God, where did you go? I know from experience. Gave my life to Christ at 19. I was a student at University of California in Berkeley, studying and majoring in history, planning on going into law school and marrying a trophy wife and buying a Porsche and being rich and famous the rest of my life. I remember I gave my life to Christ and I'm struggling with this Christian faith and then suddenly I found myself confronting choices. There was a lifestyle in that community that wasn't conducive to being a follower of Jesus. I, I had stuff that I was still into. I mean, I was still dropping acid occasionally and smoking a few joints and 
drinking a little bit too much alcohol. And there's a lot of things that were part of my life, and I kind of come in and out of that, that I probably thought that sexual immorality wasn't right, but I thought, why, well, why give it up completely? And I'll never forget that one morning, one evening, I'm laying in bed and I can't sleep and my mind is tormented. I just started been reading the Bible earlier on and I was convicted and haunted by my choices and my lifestyle. And I got out of bed at two o'clock in the morning, put my clothes on, I started going for a walk. And I remember I walked all the way down the hill, it's about a mile from my house, to Berkeley High School. I walked out on the playing field, the football field. Nobody else is there. It's, you know, there's not another person that seemed to be even alive. And I'm sitting there talking to God, saying, God, where are you? God, if you're real, you gotta show yourself. His silence was killing me. Where are you, God? Why don't you talk to me anymore? Why don't I hear from you? And I remember finally I gave up yelling at him. I was actually screaming it out to talk in my lungs and just getting complete total silence, as you might expect. And I remember finally giving up and just going, walking away. And I remember walking up that hill back up to my apartment and I'm muttering to myself, you know, I guess my problem is I'm just too smart to have faith. You know, a little flattery there. And as I'm muttering things along that line to myself, I hear this audible voice say to me, if you don't believe in me, who were you yelling at? And immediately I said, God, forgive me. I know I've been walking in sin. Forgive me. And that was when I made that decision. I'm going to commit myself to follow Jesus 100%, 24-7. Because the silence was unbearable, unbearable. So you can be a Christian who has a relationship with God, but the relationship, there's silence. You don't hear from him. As someone used to always say to me, if you can't hear God, guess who moved? It wasn't him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 